Who saw that just out of curiosity? It was really interesting. They had like an hour-long interview <coughs> with the miners. And, I mean, you know, they had some funny parts and they had some serious parts. And towards the end, it was serious. It was at the point when the water level had risen to their necks. And they had already written the letters you may have seen in the bucket that was sealed that nobody's going to open. And, you know, that, that it's very intense and the moment is building. And they asked one of the guys, I can't remember his name, that was sitting on the back row, as the water, you know, rose above your chin level, did you think you were going to die? And uh, the guy said, yeah. And he said, what did you say? What was going through your mind? If you were about to speak your last sentence, what were you going to say? And he said, I looked at Fred, or whatever the guy's name was next to him, and he said, will I go to heaven, Fred? Um, because I was never baptized in the church, and I know the Bible says you have to be baptized to go to heaven, which obviously it never says. Uh, this man's extremely curious, and he's worried that he hasn't been baptized and fulfilled this command that he thinks is in Scripture to go to heaven. And what's more amazing is what Fred says back to him. He, the comforting words before his friend dies were, Yes, you're going to go to heaven. Because all good people go to heaven. That's what I believe. And he was like, oh, well, good. You know, now I can die. We too are prone to misunderstand the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation if we formulate such notions that are found nowhere in Scripture. Therefore, our doctrines of Christ, the priest-king, must come from Scripture, which is truth about who God is. Well, you may think to yourself, why does that really matter? Why does the, the priest-king matter? Why do I need to be concerned with Christ, the priest-king? Even the Jews knew that the coming Messiah would be the one to unite two offices that had never before been united, though tried by human effort. The office of a priest and a king, and they are anticipating this thing to be done. Tonight, we are going to study in the time that we have Christ, the Messiah, the expected priest-king, in the context of Psalm 110. If you have a Bible, you would turn there with me. We will begin our study. Psalm 110 was written by David. In a minute, we're going to jump to, I think somewhere in Matthew, where Jesus uses this psalm. and it's, it's, There's a great debate over whether, if your Bible says, of David, a psalm was inspired or not. Um, it's really interesting in this debate where we see Christ use it that it actually is, but that's, that's not our point for tonight. This is a Messianic psalm by David, the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Let's look at it together. These seven verses. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. 
He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Let's pray once more before we study this psalm. Heavenly Father, once again we beg that You would send Your Spirit upon this place and minister to our hearts truth found in Your Word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason why I chose this psalm uh, after much prayer, I think, is it, it is one of the, the clearest depictions of Christ's threefold office in Scripture. If we want to know who Christ is in the context of studying the psalm, this is a great place to go, and this is where we're going to begin. There's three reigns of our Lord that we must understand if we want to understand Christ correctly. Three reigns that we must understand. The first is this. His spiritual reign. Look again at verse 1. The spiritual reign of Christ. The Lord. You know that when we come across the word Lord, all capital, we are, we are reading the word Yahweh. So, the Lord. The sovereign Lord, God Himself, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David is writing the psalm, and writes, the Lord, God Almighty, says to my Lord, lowercase, or capital L, but lowercase letters, is this psalm about David? No. There are people that think this psalm is about David, and as we study it more, you'll see it's highly impossible. What's amazing about this is if we were to diagram what would look like that we just read, what would it look like? The Lord says to my Lord, We would have God the Father here, God the Son, David's Lord here, and David beneath, witnessing a conversation between the Father and the Son. Can you imagine the stare on David's face in the perplexity as he stands back and looks at what he has just written under the guidance of the Spirit? I just witnessed a conversation between the Father and the Son. What does he say? The Lord says to my Lord, a spoken word, a spoken oracle, a direct utterance from God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David knew, according to 2 Samuel 7.12, that he would have a descendant sit on the throne forever. That it would be the Messiah, but this was something new even to David. Because only God could sit on the throne at the right hand of Jehovah. So therefore, God's Son would have to be David's Son. Amazing concept. Let's look at where Jesus uses this psalm in Matthew 22, verse 41. As He teaches the same concept that David's Son that is going to fulfill this messianic promise will also have to be the Son of God. Matthew 22, verse 41. Here we enter another segment upon Christ's death approaching where the Pharisees want to play another game of let's stump Jesus because if we can get Him to mess up one time, His whole ministry is flawed. So here we encounter them once again 
thinking they're posing a question to our Lord that He can't answer. And the way that Jesus responds is amazing. He asks them a question, they respond, and Jesus' response in a question is something that they don't even have the ability to answer. Let's look at this text in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Nobody is astonished that the Pharisees replied, the son of David. I mean, they've been studying that since they were little boys. The Messiah, the Christ, will be the son of David. And here's where Jesus poses something that they can't wrap their minds around. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any questions. Jesus asked the question, Who is the Christ? The son of David, we know that. Well then, what do you do with this text in Psalm 110, where Jesus is speaking David's words and says, The Lord said to my Lord, meaning... David's son must also be God's son. And they are speechless. Because Jesus has basically just declared, I'm the one you've been looking for. The only one that can fulfill this office is me. Of David's son and lineage, but also the son of God. How amazing is it that we're studying a text tonight that our Lord Himself knew and memorized and studied and taught. The psalm now states that the Messiah is to be one greater than David, meaning he cannot be a mere man. He must be divine. He must be God, which is precisely at this point who Christ is declaring that he was. It's no wonder that the Pharisees were silenced. Why then is the Lord saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Sitting represents honor. If you were to go biblically uh, at these times to a dinner and you were to sit at the right hand of the guest or the, the, the man who owned the house as his guest, it represents honor. The right-handed position was that of honor. But if you sat at the right hand of a king, it meant something totally different. Not were you a honored guest. If you went to dinner and you sat at the right hand of a king, you shared in his reign. You shared in his dominion. You shared in his power. Jesus is sitting somewhere that nowhere else, no one else is qualified to sit. And the reason why He's sitting is because His work of atonement is finished. He sits now in a position to await the grand and complete victory that is certain to follow as He rules over all things as King. My question to you tonight is this. Is this how you view Christ right now? Our two-year-old daughter, who we are convinced is very smart for a not even two-year-old, has a picture Bible that I had when I was a kid that all the pages are torn out and they're drawn all over. You know what I'm talking about. And she sits on the ground and she flips through it and her conception of Jesus is a fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired man. You know, that every page you see, Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus. Until you turn to the page like the crucifixion where his face is red and bloodied and I'll say, there's Jesus. And she says, no, that's not Jesus. 
And, um, you know, we'll turn to another one where it doesn't look like Christ on all the other pages. And she'll say, no, 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 that's him. That's not him. Right now, Emily has a distorted picture of who Christ is that hopefully will be straightened out with sound teaching down the way. My point to you is this. If we were to ask you tonight, what does Christ look like, what would you say? Does your mind conjure up the image of the cross? Or is it a baby in a manger? Those pictures are quite true, but that's not presently the way in which we should view our Savior. He is to be exalted in power and majesty, reigning at the right hand of the Father in dominion, waiting for all of His enemies to be defeated and shamed as His foot rests on their necks in utter defeat. That's the way we're to view our Lord presently. Application. Why is this essential that we have a correct view of Christ as He is now? Number one, salvifically. It's by grace from the Lord that those two miners didn't die underwater if that was their view of salvation. But secondly, for us as believers, it's essential to have a right view of Christ in our worship. We worship right now not a baby in a manger or a dead Christ on the cross or buried in the grave, but the risen and exalted King of all things who reigns over all in power and dominion. That is what our worship is centered towards presently. Before we leave the subject of our Lord's spiritual reign, there's two more things I want you to see quickly. Look at verses 2 and 3. <laughs> the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. In verse 2, this rod of your strength that will flow out of Zion. That's obviously the gospel. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem. What will that mighty scepter be? The gospel. As it goes forth from the Jews to all the world. And then we get this interesting analogy about dew. David was saying in a symbolic way at the time that you would look out at the field, if we were to look out at the field in the morning and see plants covered with dew. And every droplet of dew represents a soldier in this army. He's, he's, he's talking about there's many, there's tons, there are plenty. And they're clothed in holiness, ready to serve. It's very interesting that this army who is closed in holiness, ready to serve, they've all enlisted and they've enlisted willingly. This isn't an army of mercenaries or slaves or captives. The army is composed solely of volunteers. True, but there's a time when they weren't. Here's a group that is as plentiful as the dew is on plants in the morning in a field that was made willing by the work of regeneration in their lives. And now that this entire army understands Christ's sacrifice as their own, they've now made themselves willing, living sacrifices for Him. Who will go fight? You've got enough men as, as numerous as the dew, clothed in holiness, saying, we'll go. We want to go fight for the Lord. There's a man named C.T. Studd, I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, in the late 1800s, who was said to have been one of the best 
cricket players in Great Britain of all time. He wasn't a good athlete, but he spent hours in front of a mirror going over and over and over his technique until he became the greatest. At Cambridge University, he became the captain. He's the best there is. He's the best there's ever been. C.T. Studd has his life laid out playing cricket. I mean, he's the Michael Jordan of cricket, basically. One night he heard the gospel preached by Dwight Moody and he became known in church history as one of the Cambridge Seven. If you study Indian church history, they took the gospel to China and did great things. And this man, he forsook his lifestyle of cricket because he felt the Lord calling him into missions. Spent 11 years in China, which was a, a horrid thing to do in the eyes uh, of those in Great Britain at the time. He spent 11 years in China. He came back to Great Britain. He was in America And he spent the last 20 years of his life in Africa. And he died in the Conga in 1930, I believe. He was quoted at one point before he died saying this, Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Listen to that again. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. But I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. My question to you for tonight is, what about you? Have you ever seen the gladiator? Remember at the beginning? It's a great scene. He's mustering his army to fight. And he's sitting on his horse, and the fog is rising in the morning in the forest. And these guys, you can tell they're kind of scared about going into battle. And Maximus grips his horse and looks at all these men and says, Men, what you do in this lifetime echoes in eternity. Can that be said of us tonight? Are we willingly serving the King of Kings in our life tonight? I'm not talking about moving to China. In what you do, are you willingly serving the Lord? If not, if if willingly serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, how could it be a desirable thing to do for an eternity? Secondly, Christ's priestly reign, and it's not as long as the first. Neither one of these are. Look at verse 4. This is really the heart of the psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, the Lord has sworn, this is very strong language, what has He sworn? That Christ would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, thanks a lot. What in the world does that mean? Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious people in all of Scripture. We see him in Genesis 14. No geological record. Abraham's got all this plunder. He encounters Melchizedek and gives him an offering, a tenth of of what he's got. We see him in this psalm and he reappears again in Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 3. Don't turn there for sake of time, but let me read this to you. This is one of the last places that we see Melchizedek. And again, it's important for us to understand. The Lord has sworn that you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does it mean? Listen to these words. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. To say that Christ, the Lord has sworn, the Father has sworn, 
that Christ will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek means that he will be a priest forever. That a day will not exist when Christ is not our priest. Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Christ. It's, a, it's as if his position in, the God, in, in Scripture is to stand here and point that way. Here I am, this is the Old Testament and that's the New Testament. Another is coming that will be like me, even greater. The Lord has appointed him to his office of priest, of, of priest and king. It wasn't through the line of Aaron. It wasn't through the line of Levi. It was because the Lord commanded him that he would do this without beginning or without end. A great significance to Christ once again. A great parallel. He is eternal with no beginning and with no end. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He is king of Salem, which means king of peace. Once again, Christ, being our righteousness and by His death, has made peace with us between ourselves and the Father. Again, David must have read this or written this and been astonished. He knew who Melchizedek was. He knows what a priest in the order of Melchizedek means. That means a priest with no end. And David now sees if Christ is the king priest in the order of Melchizedek, instituted by God, not by the birth line of Aaron, then his ministry will be certain and sure forever without end. This, my fellow believers, must be where we anchor our assurance. Look at Hebrews six nineteen to twenty if you can find it quickly. <clears throat> I'm gonna read it if you're not there. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Several weeks ago, we were in Gulf Shores fishing with the youth group. We, we charted a huge fishing. It wouldn't even fit um, in the in the wherever you park your boat. You had to park it. I mean, it was that big. And we got out a couple of miles and we were ready to fish. He drops this, you know, it was like four or five crushed cars, big anchor <clears throat> that falls into the bottom of the sea <clears throat> and and, you know, attaches itself to the sand and the boat doesn't move. What tonight is your assurance anchored to? I began with the story of two men, one who was anchored to his good works, another who was anchored to his friends saying it was okay because he had good works. If we miss assurance, we've missed the essence of the Gospel. Our assurance is anchored to an incarnate Christ who lived a sinless life, who died and was buried, who was raised from the dead, and who is now seated next to the Father in heaven and continually intercedes for us as our priest forever. It's sure. It's certain. It's without duration or end. It's where we place our hope. Things change here day to day. None of us know what tomorrow will hold. Nothing can shake that foundation that Christ is your priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The reason we persevere in the faith is that Jesus has done all that is necessary for our salvation. 
Every bit of it. Since He is our priest, both offers and being the only sacrifice that can make our atonement, and the Father has sworn to accept it, we can be as certain that we will reside in heaven as we are that Christ is in heaven. A gracious comfort to our souls it is when our Lord gives us assurance. What a gracious Father He is indeed. Lastly, Christ's judicial reign. Let's go to our text one more time. Verse 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead. And crushing the rulers of the whole earth, He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. The Father and the Son are now pictured as working together in an event that is still to come in redemptive history. The army of verses 2 and 3 has dropped out of the scene. And it's now God who will judge and destroy all who have taken up arms against the deity. David is writing basically about the day of judgment in verses 5 through 7. And once again, why, you know, why do you come in here and bring something so depressing for us to study? Because it's the weightiness of correct doctrine. It's the weightiness of who Christ is. Jesus is love. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is grace. Gentle Jesus who holds the lambs and children and would never harm anyone. In a sense, that's correct. Jesus is grace. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is love. But so many places in this book teach that if Jesus is holy, then there's wrath. If God is holy, then He must have a hatred of sin and that hatred is His wrath. Where is kind, gentle, loving, grandfather, look the other way, Jesus, in verse 6? He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. If we were to study the Hebrew to this, it is, it's amazing. I don't know Hebrew yet. Hopefully one day I will. But I was studying men that know a lot more than me on this text. And the picture that they say David is trying to paint is horrifying. To me, if we believe there is a hell, which I think we do. Here's the picture. It's a muddy, dirty battlefield. Christ has arisen from the throne and He enters the battlefield. For what? To judge and destroy all who took up arms against the deity crushing the rulers of the whole earth, heaping up the dead. The picture is Christ coming through, executing judgment, and while He's doing so, is piling up corpses as He goes on His way. Meaning He is so zealous in His pursuit of His holiness and His wrath on sin that it can't be stopped. No one can stand in His way. And then we get to verse 7. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is amazing what David is writing. The picture is Christ on a horse on the battlefield, piling up the dead as he judges. And to refresh himself, he scoops up with his hand 
a cup full of muddy water out of a puddle and refreshes himself with a drink and goes about his way of executing judgment. That no one can stand in his way. No one would dare rise up against him. This isn't, he gets off and it's a pause. and It's kind of like a marathon runner who is so passionate and zealous for winning the race that, you know, people are handing him a cup and they grab it and drink it and throw it. This is the judicial reign of Christ when He will judge all nations with such zeal that none will be able to stop it. As we close tonight, have you trusted in Christ and Christ alone, God's only appointed priest who has made atonement for your sin? If you have, then rest in Him tonight. Rest your assurance not in what you have done or what you will do, but in the finished and accomplished work of Christ. If not, you have nothing to look forward to but condemnation when you meet Him for the first time as He righteously stands as your judge. You want right thoughts about Christ? This is what book is what right thoughts about Christ are. Hebrews 10.31 tells us that the Lord will judge His people, adding that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Which is what all will do who don't know Him as their Savior. Listen to this quote and we'll be finished almost. Alexander McLaren says this, The choice of every man is being crushed beneath his foot or being exalted with Him to sit on His throne. In Old Testament time, it was common practice. When you defeated a king, they would bring him before the king and he would step on the king's neck. And that symbolized you're defeated and you're helpless. And a lot of times would cut his head off. The choice of every man is being crushed beneath his foot or being exalted with him to sit on his throne. We pray tonight that the Lord would open your eyes to see your need of Him and reveal Himself to you savingly by His grace and enable you to choose Him for His glory. What then do you and I as fellow believers say about this Christ, about His spiritual reign, about His priestly reign in the order of Melchizedek that will last forever, which is our assurance, about His judicial reign as a warrior king vindicating His offended holiness while extending eternal grace to His elect? What do we say? As believers, there's nothing else we can say. But hallelujah. What a Savior He is indeed. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a grand scheme of salvation You have wrought on our behalf. We can't even wrap our minds fully around Your grace. Father, we can't even wrap our minds fully around that You would desire to save those such as us. Lord, we are, we are humbled as we come before You tonight. We think of a day, a day that comes when those who know You not will be judged. That is not a day that we look forward to. We pray for those who don't know You that You would be gracious, that You would open their eyes to see their need of Your Son tonight. We pray in our own lives that You would give us a hunger and a desire to see the lost come to Christ. And we praise You to the night that You have provided assurance for the believer. That it is a gift You bestow. We thank You that we anchor our salvation to Your Son. 
Be with us as we go our separate ways tonight. Guide us as we seek to be parents, as we seek to be husbands and wives. May you be glorified by the way that we live our lives. We pray for strength in the Holy Spirit to do so. And we pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.